One of the great medical innovations to come in recent decades is an electronic device called the cochlear implant. It's a remarkable invention that's transformed the lives of many deaf individuals who are born with inner ear deformities that would make it impossible for them to hear anything to pick up the sound waves that are constantly traveling through the air. But once these individuals are fitted with a cochlear device, that ability to hear sound is often restored, and in many cases, these individuals go on to live completely normal lives. This morning in our study in 1 Corinthians, we're going to see an analogous situation that exists in the spiritual realm. A spiritual deformity in the heart of every person that makes it impossible for us to properly hear and understand the wisdom of God as revealed in the Word of God. But as we're also going to see today, the great physician has graciously provided a way for this capacity to be restored so that some are enabled to hear the wisdom of God and to respond to that message of wisdom by placing their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ. Just as a cochlear implant can restore the ability of a deaf person to discern sound waves traveling through the air, so the Holy Spirit can restore the ability of a sinner to discern God's wisdom and to respond appropriately to the gospel message. If you have your Bible with you this morning, I'd invite you to open it up with me. Turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. We begin reading this morning at verse 6 all the way to the end of the chapter. Hear the Word of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths with spiritual words. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And thanks be to God for his inspired and inerrant word this morning. Well, for the past number of weeks, we've been dealing with the subject of wisdom and folly here in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians. Discussion that Paul began back in chapter 1 is his response to a divisive spirit that had entered into the Corinthian church along with a worldly attraction to human wisdom and human philosophy. When the Apostle Paul first entered the city of Corinth and planted this church a few years before writing this letter, he'd established the church on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and the message of the cross. 
refusing in any way to use his platform as a preacher and a public speaker to win a personal following among the Greek intellectuals or to distract from the message of the gospel in any way. That's what we learned last week in chapter 2, verse 2, where Paul speaks about the deliberate decision he made in Corinth to know nothing among these Christians except Jesus Christ and Him crucified, so that their faith would rest not in the wisdom and eloquence of men, but in the mighty power of God. In his ministry, Paul wanted all of the glory to go directly to Christ and not to himself, and so he intentionally demonstrated his full reliance on the gospel to establish this church and to produce multiplying disciples of Jesus Christ. But somewhere along the way, these Corinthians had started to stray off the path. They were moving away from the simple declaration of the cross and turning instead to worldly wisdom, worldly methods that were prized and sought after by the culture around them. In their desire to be accepted by the non-believing world, the Corinthians had exchanged the simple word of the cross for a word of human wisdom, And in the process, they had lost the power of the gospel. They had failed in their duty to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Prideful quarreling and fighting was tearing the church apart. And Paul wrote this letter to remind the struggling Christians in Corinth that God's wisdom is completely contrary to the wisdom of this world and that the world's wisdom has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, up to this point in his discussion, Paul has been speaking to the Corinthians somewhat tongue-in-cheek about the foolishness of the gospel and the foolishness of God, and he has been speaking this way to reflect the attitude of people outside of the church who have not been regenerated or touched or made new by the Holy Spirit. You see, for the unsaved Jews outside of the church, for the unsaved Gentiles outside of the church, the message of a crucified God was a stumbling block and foolishness. This was not a message that appealed in any way to the mind or the heart or the natural inclination of fallen man. Indeed, it was a message that caused great offense and that provoked great ridicule. And so Paul speaks in these early chapters of the foolishness of the gospel, about the foolishness of the people God has chosen to save, about the foolishness of his unadorned, cross-centered method of preaching and evangelism. And at the heart of Paul's entire argument on wisdom and folly are the words we read in verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Paul has adopted thus far in his discussion the perspective in the language of non-believers outside of the church. But here in chapter 2, verse 6, the argument turns a corner as Paul begins to unpack the true nature of wisdom and to show the Corinthian Christians that the wisdom or the message of the cross is not foolish at all. Non-believers outside of the church might say that the gospel is foolish. They might treat Christians as though we are fools for believing it. But Paul's goal at this point in the letter is to recalibrate the thinking in this church and to show the believers the message of Christ crucified is in fact the highest form of human wisdom. It is in fact the highest form of philosophy known to man. It is the hidden wisdom from God that can only be seen and only embraced through the sovereign revelation of the Holy Spirit. And so in the time we have this morning, we're going to follow the train of Paul's argument in these inspired verses when he speaks to us about the recipients of God's wisdom in verse 6, about the nature of God's wisdom in verses 6 to 10, and about the revelation of God's wisdom in verses 10 to 16. Let's begin then by looking at the recipients of God's wisdom as described by Paul in verse 6 
of our text. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Although it's true that Paul was perceived by proud people both inside and outside of the church as rather foolish and simple, he wants these Christians to see things from God's perspective to discern the divine wisdom that's contained in the simple message of the cross. And so Paul tells them here in verse 6, the message he proclaimed to them time and time again is true wisdom from God and that the recipients of this true wisdom are those who are mature. Paul is continuing here in this text to make a contrast between two groups of people, between believers inside of the church who've responded to the word of the cross and non-believers outside of the church who have rejected that message. And so the word mature in verse 6 is a reference to Christians in general. He's referring to men and women who've been made complete in Christ and who've been indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Friends, it is so important that we understand the identity of this group called the mature because a misinterpretation on this point will spoil the entire passage and will cause us to misunderstand the main point that the apostle is making. When we think about that word mature, perhaps the word perfect, if you're reading from the King James Version, it would be very easy to get the wrong impression to think that Paul is somehow dividing the Christians into two different classes. The spiritually elite and mature who can discern God's wisdom and the spiritually immature who cannot discern it. As Gordon Fee has rightly noted in his commentary on this text, almost every form of spiritual elitism, deeper life movement, and second blessing doctrine has appealed to this text and has therefore interpreted and applied Paul's words in a way that the author never intended them to be understood. We're going to have more to say on that in a couple weeks when we move into chapter 3 and examine Paul's rebuke of the worldly or so-called carnal Christians in the church. But for now, let me emphasize, Paul is not using the word mature in verse 6 to differentiate between two spiritual classes of Christians. We know that he's not doing that because that's what the church was doing before Paul wrote the letter. It's one of the main reasons that Paul wrote this letter in the first place. In their arrogance and their spiritual pride, the Corinthians were dividing from one another on the basis of worldly wisdom. And Paul's intent is not to foster an elitist attitude in the church, but rather to challenge that attitude to help these believers to unite together as members of one body, one family. And so understand here, friends, Paul's reference to the mature in verse 6 is a reference to Christians in general. He is speaking to ordinary Christians like you and me who have been perfected by God's grace, brought to completion through the sacrifice of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he wants us to know, we who believe are the recipients of true wisdom from God, a wisdom that he is now going to define and describe in the remainder of the chapter. No, friends, there's an important lesson for us in this word mature. A sense in which every one of us who knows the Lord Jesus is already complete in Him, even though we'd all admit that we have a lot of areas of growth that still need to happen. When we are brought by God's sovereign grace to repent of our sin, to receive Jesus by faith alone, God's Word says the Holy Spirit comes and He takes up residence in our hearts and our lives. And at that moment of regeneration, when the Spirit creates new life in the heart, God graciously gives us all of the spiritual resources we need to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to Him. In terms of our position before God, our standing before God, every Christian is already complete and mature in Christ. 
And in that sense, it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for eight minutes or for eight years or for 80 years. If you know the Lord Jesus as Savior, you are clothed in His perfect righteousness and it is on that basis and that basis alone that you are saved by God and rescued from the wrath of His judgment to come. So brothers and sisters, even as we actively pursue greater holiness, greater obedience in our lives as Christians, let us never forget that we who know Christ are already complete in Him. We are accepted by God. We are washed clean of all of our sins through the blood of Christ who died in our place. The first half of verse 6, Paul speaks about the recipients of divine wisdom, explaining that God's wisdom has been imparted to the spiritually mature. And now in verses 6-10, to the Apostle will go on to tell us about the nature of divine wisdom, first of all clarifying what his wisdom is not, and then explaining to us what his wisdom is. Have another look at verse 6, where Paul tells us, first of all, what God's wisdom is not. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. First thing we must understand about about the nature of God's wisdom is that His wisdom does not belong to this age or to the rulers of this age. And to get a handle on what Paul is speaking about here, it might be helpful to understand the biblical authors frequently divide history into two great ages or epochs. The present age that's marked by sin and brokenness and rebellion against God and the age to come that is marked by righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. When Paul mentions this age and the rulers of this age in verse 6, what he's really speaking about there is the current world system that is broken and fallen and under the dominion of Satan. He is referring to this sin-cursed world we all experience on a daily basis and are reminded of every time we turn on the television or scroll through the daily news headlines. And in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the Apostle Paul uses the same expression to tell us the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. In other words, men and women who belong to the present age of darkness and sin and fallenness are morally unable to perceive the wisdom of God and are thus unable to respond to the message of salvation without divine grace and enablement. As Paul puts it in Romans 1, although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. You see, friends, unbelievers who belong to this present age are a lot like the profoundly deaf we spoke about earlier. You and I and everyone who comes into, comes into this world with a deformity of the heart that is caused by original sin. And because of that deformity, we are born under the dominion of Satan. We are completely unable to discern spiritual truth. And even though the sound waves of God's truth and God's wisdom might strike our eardrums through the preaching of the cross and the reading of Scripture, there is no moral capacity in fallen man to perceive the truth, and so the truth is rejected, and the truth is considered to be foolishness. This is the tragic plight of all who belong to this present evil age. It is the plight especially of the rulers of this age who govern their subjects according to worldly standards. 
When Pilate and Caiaphas were confronted head-on with the wisdom of God made incarnate in the person and work of Jesus Christ, they had every opportunity to bow before Him and to worship Him as God. But instead they rejected Him and they mocked Him and they nailed Him to a cross. This is what Paul offers as evidence in verse 8. God's wisdom is not of this age because if it was of this age, the rulers of this age would not have murdered Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And centuries earlier, the psalmist David made the same observation in Psalm 2, stating prophetically that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, this is the heart. This is the attitude that belongs to the present age. A desire in the heart of the unregenerate person to live independently from the God who created him. To not allow this holy and sovereign God to bring him under his authority. Left to our own natural devices, left to our own fallen human nature, we would far rather crucify the Lord of glory. We would far rather be rid of him forever than we would bow at his feet. And cling to Him in humble reverence and awe. God's wisdom, brothers and sisters, does not belong to this present age. But the good news that ought to give us great hope this morning, great joy this morning, is that this evil age and all of its rebellious foolishness is ultimately destined for destruction. For Paul tells us in verse 6, the rulers of this age are doomed to pass away. You know, the writing is on the wall for Satan and his minions. It's only a matter of time before the evil kingdoms, evil governments of this world are brought to nothing and are replaced with the perfect, righteous government of King Jesus. Psalm 37 puts it, In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Christian friends, we are living in an age where divine wisdom is rejected and ridiculed by the vast majority of people around us. But take heart, because the age to come has already broken into this present evil age in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and the kingdom of God is still on the way in far greater fullness. As followers of Christ, we may live in this age, but we certainly don't belong to this age. We're pilgrims in this world. We're strangers in this world. And collectively, the church of Jesus Christ on earth is a little foretaste of what is yet to come in the future when our King returns to this earth to set things right again and to fill the whole earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Paul wants us to understand, first and foremost, the wisdom of God is not of this age, nor is it of the rulers of this age. But in verses 7 to 10, he goes on to define the wisdom of God in positive terms and to tell us exactly what that wisdom is. And so let's have another look at those verses together. Verses 7 to 10. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. First thing that Paul tells us about God's wisdom in these verses is that it is secret and hidden. It is something inaccessible to human understanding apart from the gracious revelation of God. 
The Greek word mysterion that's translated secret in my Bible, perhaps mystery in your Bible, has a unique meaning in the context of Paul's theology. It's a word that he uses a number of times in the New Testament to refer to the same thing. When you and I think about that word mystery in the English language, we probably think about something like a Rubik's Cube or an episode of CSI. We think about a difficult puzzle. We think about a difficult riddle that we need to work hard to figure out. But in the context of Paul's teaching and theology, the word mystery is always used to describe something that is hidden and later on revealed by God and brought into the open where it can be seen. That's why the ESV version I'm reading from today translates the Greek word as secret. It is something hidden that is later revealed. If you want to know what the secret is, the best place to find it is in Ephesians 3 where Paul explains it and tells us what it is. And here's what he says. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed by his, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This mystery, this hidden secret Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians is nothing less than the plan of salvation that comes to both Jew and Gentile through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the plan of salvation that our triune God ordained in eternity past. It is a plan that is being progressively worked out through the long and winding course of human history. In the Old Testament Scripture, we get many glimmers and many glimpses of this unfolding mystery as God speaks to His people about a coming deliverer, giving them pictures of that deliverer in the sacrificial system, giving them predictions through the prophets about a future king who would suffer and die from, for sins and then rule and reign eternally on David's throne. From the time of Adam and Eve and their fall in the garden, God started to reveal His plan of salvation to humanity. But for centuries and for generations, the fine details of that plan remain hidden from view and obscure. And as we know, in the fullness of time, God's plan of salvation came to fruition. Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary. and He lived the perfect sinless life that we can't live. And He fulfilled all of the Old Testament law and prophets. And He died on the cross to forgive our sins. And He rose from the dead on the third day. This, brothers and sisters, is the hidden mystery Paul is talking about in our text. God's plan of salvation that has come to fulfillment in Christ. And as Christians, we now understand what the prophets of old longed to look into. You know, there's a sense in which anyone who wants to know the content of this mystery can know it because it's written in the Bible. It's right there in black and white. If you want to know the mystery, all you need to do is open up the Word of God and read it. There's a sense in which the plan of salvation has been unveiled for everyone to see, but there's also a sense in which the wisdom and the plan of God remains hidden and inaccessible from the mind of fallen man. We all know from Scripture, from personal experience, there are millions of people all around this world who have full access to the Bible, who know many details about Christ's life and death and resurrection, but who stubbornly persist in their unbelief and continue to openly reject the message. And so we're brought back to the truth in chapter 1, verse 18. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
And we are also brought to understand that there is an ongoing hiddenness when it comes to divine wisdom. That's the reason Jesus taught the parables. To reveal the wisdom of God to some and to conceal it from others. As he said to his disciples in Mark 4, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus prays to his Father in heaven and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God's wisdom is a mystery that remains hidden and concealed from the minds and the hearts of the unregenerate, but it is secondly something that God decreed before the ages for our glory, as we read in verse 7. Though many modern and liberal theologians like to suggest that God changes his mind willy-nilly, he's constantly readjusting his plans to accommodate the free, sinful choices we make as human beings, the truth of the Bible is that God never changes his mind. The plans of God's redemption have been fixed and preordained from all of eternity. That's the teaching we find in Revelation 13.8, where Jesus is described as the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. It is the teaching we find in Acts 4 where the church in Jerusalem holds a prayer meeting in response to persecution and declares in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is exactly what Paul is speaking about in verse 8 when he says that God's hidden secret wisdom was decreed before the ages. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand this morning, the God of the Bible is a sovereign God. He is not a God who changes His mind. He is not a God who changes His plans. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, the salvation that resulted from that historical event, was never plan B. It is and it always has been plan A. A demonstration of God's wisdom that was preordained for the glory of all those who know Him and who love Him. Finally, Paul tells the Corinthians in verses 9 to 10, the wisdom of God's plan has been sovereignly revealed to them through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here in verse 9, Paul quotes a verse from the prophet Isaiah, but contrary to popular belief, he is not quoting this verse to tell us something about the glories of heaven. Rather, in this context, Paul is quoting Isaiah 64 to demonstrate the total inability of man to perceive the hidden wisdom of God. This verse reminds us the unregenerate person is unable to discern the riches of God's wisdom in Christ simply by straining to see it with his eyes or straining to hear it with his ears or straining to imagine it in his heart. And were it not for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit enabling us to see God's wisdom, enabling us to perceive the glory and the majesty of God's saving work in Jesus Christ, we would remain forever lost. We would forever stumble around in darkness. Well, this brings us then to the final section in verses 10 to 16, where the Apostle Paul speaks in more detail about our desperate need for the Holy Spirit and his ministry of Revelation. Let's look at those final verses, verses 10 to 16. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 
For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths with spiritual words. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This entire section of text from verse 10 to the end of the chapter deals with the total inability of fallen humanity to discern divine wisdom from God. And in verses 10 and 11, Paul uses a human illustration to help us understand an important spiritual truth. You and I as human beings do not have the ability to read the mind of another person and nobody on this planet has the ability to read our mind. And even if you know me better than anyone else does, you might think you know what's happening in my head. You might think you know what's happening in my heart. But in reality, the only person that really knows what's going on inside my head and my heart besides God is me. I know myself. I know my mind. I know my heart. I know it better than any other person in this room and the same thing is true about you. And if you and I lack the ability to read the mind of another human being here on earth, you better believe that we lack the ability to read the mind of Almighty God and to know what He's thinking and to know what He's feeling and to know what He's planning. The only one who knows the mind of God is God. That's the point Paul is making here about the Holy Spirit. As a third person of the Holy Trinity, the Spirit understands the mind of God. He plumbs the depths of the wisdom of God because He is God. And if you want to know the mind of God, if you want to understand the wisdom of God's plan, there is only one way that it's going to happen, and it is through the Holy Spirit taking that secret hidden wisdom of God and sovereignly imparting that wisdom to you. Knowledge of God's plan. Knowledge of God's wisdom comes only through divine revelation. You cannot think your way into heaven. You cannot reason your way into the kingdom. Divine wisdom must be granted to you by God. And it is granted only by revelation of the Spirit. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit has chosen to reveal the plan of God and the mind of God is through the Bible that is sitting on your lap. That's what I believe Paul is talking about in verse 13. The unique responsibility God gave to him as an apostle to impart divine wisdom to humanity by writing down inspired, inerrant words that were given to him by the Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And when Paul writes in verse 13 that we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Holy Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths with spiritual words. I think Paul is speaking specifically about his apostolic role. He's explaining the unique role God called him to play in making divine revelation known to us so that we can hold a divinely inspired book in our hands. The Bible is a wonderful and precious gift from God. 
It's a divinely inspired book that explains to us the wisdom of God's plan, the salvation that has been accomplished through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the fact remains, before we are brought to believe what the Bible says and to accept the message of this book as wisdom from God and as revelation from God, we need the Holy Spirit to do a work of regeneration in our heart. Because in a spiritual sense, we're deaf, we're blind. There's a deformity in our heart from original sin that prevents us from hearing and from embracing God's word as God's truth. And the reason I know that this is true is because of what the Apostle Paul says in the very next verse. Look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Note very carefully here, friends. Paul does not say that the unbeliever is merely unwilling to discern truth. That's not what this verse says. This verse says they are unable to discern truth. The natural man without the Spirit of God does not accept the things of God because he cannot accept the things of God. He is like a profoundly deaf person who goes through life without the benefit of a cochlear implant. He is constantly bombarded by sound waves of divine truth through nature, through preaching, through the reading of the Scripture, but he lacks a functioning receptor to make sense of that knowledge, and so he rejects that knowledge as foolishness, and he continues to live in open rebellion against God. That is the difference between the natural man described in verse 14 and the spiritual man described in verse 15. The spiritual man is the person who's been graciously brought to life by the Holy Spirit. The natural man is the person who has been left to the just consequences of his sin. And if we truly understand the message of this text this morning, the terrible, hopeless plight of fallen humanity apart from God's saving grace, it should cause each and every one of us as Christians to cry out to God with thanksgiving for the work His His Spirit has accomplished in our hearts to ascribe all of the glory, all of the credit for salvation to God alone, and to take none of that glory and none of the credit for ourselves. Salvation is all of God's grace. It is a gift of God from first to last. Secondly, an understanding of Paul's teaching in this text should cause us to feel great compassion and great pity for lost people around us, and especially for those lost men and women who sometimes mock us and treat us as though we are fools. Because the truth is, friends, that they have been blinded by a sin nature inherited by Adam and also by the God of this world who wants to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You know, at times we are all tempted as Christians to get frustrated, to get angry with non-believers in our lives, non-believers in our society at large who actively and sometimes loudly reject and ridicule the truth of God's Word. We get angry. We get frustrated with politicians. We get angry. We get frustrated with influential leaders who promote social agendas that go completely against the values of God's kingdom and God's Word. And we rant against them and we rail against them on social media. We complain about them to our friends. When what we really should be doing is praying for them. Praying for their salvation. Asking God to do the work of regeneration in their heart that He once did in our heart. 
We need to pray that non-believers all around us would be touched by the Holy Spirit, that they would be led by the inspired Word of God to see the beauty of Christ, to discern the true wisdom of God that is found in Him, Him alone. Left to our own nature, left to our own devices, salvation is absolutely and utterly impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And if He saved you, and if He saved me, He can save anyone by His grace. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us not give up on the non-believers God has placed into our families and in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our workplaces and in our government. Let us share the Word of God boldly. Let us pray diligently that the Holy Spirit will do His sovereign work of illumination in their hearts, causing the deaf to hear, causing the blind to see, for the glory of God.